do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Good morning. It's good to be with you today, church. I want to invite you to grab a Bible. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 will be primarily in verses 15 through 17 as we continue on in our series this summer through the first letter of John. And before we dive in, I just want to say it's really, really good to be with you this morning. I have a special love for this congregation. Um, I Probably none of you remember this, but two years ago this month, my wife, Amy, she's sitting right there. We came down to do a visit here at... Co- okay, one person. Yes! <laughs> we came here to do a visit at Coastal Church. Uh, I don't think you guys knew it at the time, but this was my kind of my interview weekend. Um, and I got to be with this congregation. And we fell in love with Coastal as a result of your hospitality that weekend, and there's just a a real special sweetness that I have for this body of believers. And then to see God's grace in Pastor Andrew, and to see how God's bringing more and more people to Coastal to hear the gospel, not for the name of Coastal, but for the name of Jesus. It's been truly, truly incredible. Even talking to one brother back there who has been a part of this church in different contexts for 20 years. Like, God's grace is so evident in this body of believers. Um, and I wanted to thank you uh, because, and I'm, we want to use our language really carefully, I am not taking Hunter, you are sending Hunter. Um, and yeah, and so I've even heard that a couple times this morning. I praise God for his grace. Uh, I think, yeah, Sarah Douglas back there, and then Hunter's probably back there too. Um, a couple people when I was here three weeks ago for Hunter's ordination came up to me and said, take really good care of them. Um, I want to say Hunter and Sarah Douglas are really easy people to take good care of. They are godly and kind and compassionate and gifted. And uh, I can't wait to see how the Lord uses Hunter for his glory in Williamsburg as we get ready to launch in August. And I'm just grateful for you all for having the missions mindset in sending Hunter to keep growing, keep learning in the Lord, and to make a difference for the gospel in Williamsburg. Amen? Amen. All right, First John 2. Um, as you turn there, allow me to lay out a scenario for you. Imagine you're on the way to church this morning and you witness a car crash and it's bad. Um, someone's thrown from the car and you instantly pull over. You call EMS services. 911 is on the way. Now you get out of the car to see what you can do. You see someone now is lying on the road. Really, really scary moment. And you run over to the person to see if they're still okay, to see if they're still alive. You want to do what you can before the ambulance gets there to help them. Now, in that moment, imagine running over to them, bending over them, and asking to see their birth certificate, to see if they're still alive. You ask for proof of when they were born to see if they're still alive. That would make no sense, right? Like, in this horrifying scenario, you wouldn't go and ask for their birth certificate. You would check their vital signs, right? If you wanted to determine if someone was still alive, you would check to see if there was a pulse, some kind of heartbeat. You would want to know that they're still breathing. And this morning, we're going to do a vital sign check on our Christian lives. We're going to do a breathing check 
on our Christian lives, because that's where we are in 1 John. See, here's what happens. Oftentimes, when people ask you if you're a Christian, or I've had this happen to me, when people ask me if I'm a Christian, I will respond with the date that I put my faith in Jesus and was saved. For me, that was January 11, 2012. If you're an Arminian, that's when I accepted Christ. If you're a Calvinist, that's when God saved me. But we point to that day because it's a good day. And many of us have those moments, those moments where we trusted in Jesus, where we got our spiritual birth certificate, where God looked at our lives, intervened, and changed our eternities forever. We praise God. We say hallelujah to those moments and to those days. But here's the thing. So often, and I've done this in my own life, we are quick to bank our salvation on the memory of that moment. And we neglect to look at the evidence of our lives. So that's what, Lord willing, we're going to do today. A breathing check. We're going to look at our vitals. And I just want to prepare us. I think that at times it might get a little bit uncomfortable this morning. Believe me, as a guest preacher filling Pastor Andrew's pulpit, I would so much rather on Father's Day talk about how good the fatherhood of God is or how great dads are, but that's not where we are. We have a weighty text to deal with. We have some self-examination to deal with this morning because that's where we are in 1 John. So let me read the word for us. I'll pray, and we'll talk about it for a few minutes. And if you haven't gotten bacon, then you can go get some. It's the word of God, 1 John 2, beginning at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Father, we come into your presence this morning through the person and work of Jesus. We come covered in the blood of Jesus. He is our high priest, our mediator, our propitiation, as we've learned in this series. We're so grateful for Jesus. And so now I pray, God, that this would be a supernatural moment where you would ordain the preaching of the word to edify the body of believers gathered together this morning. Equip the saints through the work of the ministry, through the preached word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, verse 15 again. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Church, I am convinced that one of the greatest challenges in our time today, in 2023, in American Christianity, in our culture, is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. That the love of the world and the love, the lusts of the things of the world that John is writing about, that that love, that lust would endanger our love for God and limit our effectiveness for Christ. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He said this over a hundred years ago, but I think it rings so profoundly true for our time. Spurgeon said this, I believe one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Put your finger on any prosperous phase in the church's history, and you will find a little marginal note that says, in this age, people could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. I think that describes our time. 
We're living in a culture today where the church looks a lot like the world, where it's becoming harder and harder to tell the difference between professing Christians and those who aren't followers of Jesus at all. So many studies, so many statistics show us that our divorce patterns as Christians, our spending habits, our sexual activity before marriage and outside of marriage, our pornography usage, our charitable giving, even, get this church, even our patterns of physical abuse are statistically the same as those who don't profess Christ at all. What's happening Why is this happening? I'm convinced it's because we as Christians are slowly but surely letting the love and lust of the world creep into our hearts like a vine. When that happens, that vine, those lusts of the world, slowly choke out a love for God and a love for the things of God. Now, I know this sounds intense. I get that. But look back at the second part of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, here's where I want every eye on me for a second. If our lives are overcome by a love for the world, then despite our profession of faith in Jesus, John is making it clear that there is a very real possibility that we are not truly saved and that the love of the Father is not in us. That if we point back to a moment in time when we walked down the aisle at youth camp or came up, to the altar when the band was playing a super emotional song. And in that moment, we asked Jesus to save us. But then we've gone on living year after year and our lives look identical to the world around us. Then John is saying, not Colin is saying, that there's a real chance that you don't actually know Jesus. That we don't actually know Jesus. That the love of the Father is not in us. And that's not just John. The whole New Testament speaks to this theme. Look at the words of Jesus just for a moment. Matthew 6, 24. Jesus said this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or as John would put it, we can't love the things of the world and love God at the same time. The two are incompatible. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying here, there are people who think they're Christians, people who are going through the motions who don't actually know him. Listen to what he says about those people. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I know what you're thinking. They're going to have a ton of fun in Williamsburg. <laughs> like, this is heavy stuff. And, and here's what I'm not trying to do. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation. Listen to what is true of you, Christian. You are chosen and redeemed and saved and secured by the blood of Jesus. As Hunter was praying, it's his performance on the cross, not ours, that secures our eternity in heaven. We're saved by grace through faith. Our salvation is a gift unearned by us and earned by the personal work of Jesus on the cross. As one Puritan put it, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We praise God for these truths. But as we've seen this summer, John is pushing us And John is challenging us, creating attention over and over again 
John is creating this dividing line between those who are truly in the faith. John uses the language, those who are of us and those who are not of us, those who aren't in the faith. We saw this two weeks ago in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so why give these warnings? Why do we have verses like this in the New Testament? Why do we have passages like Matthew 6, not serving two masters, and Matthew 7, away from me, I never knew you. In 1 John 2, the love of the Father is not in us. Why do we have these texts in the Bible? I'll tell you. It's because since the birth of the church, there have been people in the church who have been going through the motions, professing Christ with their mouths while their lives remain unchanged, blissfully unaware that they are headed down a road towards eternal separation from God. And so as a pastor, as a Christian, I can't stand up here this morning and give you false assurance. All throughout the New Testament, the scriptures are clear. If you truly know Jesus, then you will live for Jesus. Not perfectly, to be sure, but authentically. And we see this today. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. So that's our command this morning from verse 15. You have this in your notes. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Now, let me explain what John means by this, because you might be thinking, isn't this the same guy that wrote John 3.16? Like John told us that God loved the world. And elsewhere, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors. We're told as Christians to love people in the world. So 1 John 2.15 can't mean that we shouldn't love people. Now, whenever we're interpreting Scripture, it's always a good practice to let the immediate context of the passage help us with figuring out what the Bible is saying. And today, John makes that really easy for us. Look at verse 16 as we consider the question, what does John mean when he refers to the world? Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So after John tells us not to love the world, he then explains what loving the world means. He's talking about the things of the world that make up the desires of our flesh. Some translations say lusts of our flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is really helpful, or at least it was to me, because as a husband and father, here's what I desire. I desire a, a safe place to raise my family. I desire a good education for my kids. I desire a good and healthy and happy marriage. Honestly, I desire the occasional round of golf or a baseball game. I mean, it's Father's Day weekend after all. Like, we desire good things, and these things are things in the world. And some of you might have a desire for a spouse this morning. That's in the world. Some of you might have a desire for a better job or better health. Listen, these are good, normal desires, and they have to do with circumstances in the world. That's not what John is writing about here in chapter 2. No, John is writing in verse 15 and 16 about a love, I would even say a lust for the things of the world that overtakes our love for God. Listen, there is a, a beauty, a natural goodness in rightly ordered desires. We are created first and foremost to desire God, to be fully satisfied in all that God is for us in Christ, to have our cups filled by God. And then, and only then, are we freed up to enjoy the things that God gives us. God is for our enjoyment. 
Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says this, As for the rich in this present age, which is all of us, we look at global poverty standards, we're all rich, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God provides us with things for our enjoyment. And so, fathers... Later on tonight, if you're outside on the deck firing up the grill in the great outdoors, know that God has created perfectly grilled steak for your enjoyment. God is not against our joy. He's for it. But the key here, this is really important, is to first have our joy rooted in God. We have to have it established in God. When a love of the things of this world overtakes our love for God, we start to lust after them. We desire them in unhealthy ways and sin, then we sin to satisfy our cravings. And so let me give an example. If a desire for you to be married overtakes your desire to be satisfied in Christ, then you're in trouble. When you desire safety for your kids or a really nice neighborhood to raise them, which are good things, good desires, when you desire those things over a desire to make Christ known to the ends of the earth, that's when the alarm bell should start ringing in our minds. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are the things in this world that we so easily elevate to idolatry. Things that we put before God. Things that we desire more than we desire God. And they hit us in different life stages too. I want us to see this. For my teenagers in the room, raise your hand if you're a teenager. I think we have a few. Raise your hand if you're a teenager. All right, teenagers don't like raising their hands. That's fine. If you're a young adult, you don't have to raise your hand if you're a young adult. But if you're, think about this, teenagers to young adults, be especially on guard against the desires of the flesh. We'll see in verse 16, there are three different stages. I think John's writing intentionally. I think for the young people in the room, our battle is primarily against the lusts of the flesh. These are the ages where statistically pornography addiction is most common and where premarital sexual activity statistically is the highest. And I don't think that that would be a surprise to John. He seems to be writing following a pattern. For the young person, battles against the lusts of the flesh can at times seem overwhelming. So if that's you, younger brother or sister, get counsel. You have a church family that loves you. Tap into these believers and pursue sexual purity. Now, if you're more towards middle age this morning, and I, I really won't ask you to raise your hands. I'm going to allow you to self-identify as countercultural as that might be. Uh, pay special attention to verse 16 when it says the desires of the eyes. So the younger ones might have to battle a little more strongly against the lust of the flesh. If you're in the middle age season of your life, Watch especially closely the desires of the eyes. This is that season in your life where maybe the lust has calmed down a bit, and praise God you're getting a handle on it, but man, if you're not careful, it can become incredibly easy to begin to see what other people have and to covet it. To look around with your eyes, to lust with your eyes, and to grow bitter that someone else seems to have it better than you. Let me give you an example, because I'm just starting, honestly, to notice this in myself. We were walking around the neighborhood last week, and I find myself saying as we walk around our neighborhood, man, that guy has a nice lawn. Ten years ago, I would not have cared about lawn care. 
It makes no sense to me. I didn't care about long hair. Ten years ago, I was busy trying to conquer lust and battle sexual impurity. And now I'm envying this brother down the street because his grass is greener than mine. And honestly, there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek there. But listen, church. God cares about the sin of coveting just as much as he cares about the sin of lust. Like, all sin is an offense in his sight. And so what happens when we get to that middle phase is, okay, we've calmed down the lust a little bit, and now we think we've got it under control, and then all of a sudden we look around and we see that everyone has it better than us. And we start to grow discontent in our circumstances. And when we grow discontent in our circumstances, we are directly saying to God, I don't trust your sovereignty and where you have me right now. That becomes a problem. Finally, the third stage, I think, is for our more seasoned saints— my older brothers and sisters in the room, John warns against the pride of life. The pride that tells you you have it all figured out. That the young people in church who are struggling with sin just must not be as serious about Jesus as you are. And some versions translate this as pride in possessions. The first two seasons dealing with things that we don't have, lust of the flesh, coveting with the eyes, and the last season deals with the danger of being puffed up by the things that we do have, whether it be wisdom or possessions. And so to my older brothers and sisters, here's my word for you. Have some perspective and remember where you were when you were 25. Have compassion, be patient, love, and come alongside your younger brothers and sisters. Here's Here's the point, church. John gives us this list, the desires of the flesh and the eyes, the pride of life, to both explain to us what loving the world looks like and to warn us to guard our own lives and keep our desires for Jesus as our central focus. Now, in the remainder of this passage, he gives us two additional reasons why we ought not to love the world. And we know that when the Bible says something, it stands on its own. God doesn't need to give us reasons to not love the world. When he says don't love the world, that should be sufficient for us. But in this text, God is gracious and kind. He gives us two additional, I'll call them motivations, as to why we shouldn't love the world. You have these in your notes. Letter A, love for the world is not from the Father. The first additional reason God gives us to not love the world is because that kind of love is not from him. It's not from the Father. Look at verse 16 again. For all that's in the world, we've covered this, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Focus on this next part of the verse here. Is not from the Father, but is from the world. As Christians, we should strive to not love the world because that love is not from the Father. If it's not from the Father, it must come from a different source. Let me give you an example from the scriptures. We know the story of Adam and Eve, how God is created man in his image, male and female in his image, and then given them what theologians call the dominion mandate, to be fruitful and multiply, multiply, starting in this beautiful garden of Eden where they enjoyed fellowship with each other and perfect fellowship with God. Everything in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 was really, really good. And then comes Genesis 3. And we know this, church, the story takes a turn in Genesis 3. Let me read God's word for us. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's a Father's Day sermon in and of itself. Lead your home, brothers. Verse 7, And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. How did Satan tempt Eve in the garden? Verse 6 tells her that she saw that the tree was good for food, which satisfied her hunger. Church, that's the desire for the flesh. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Verse 6 makes that really clear. That's the desire of the eyes. And she saw that it was desired to make one wise, which hits Eve right in the pride of life. Listen, Satan is a lot of things, but he's not that creative. The playbook for our lives today has not changed that much since Genesis 3. He tempts us with the love of the world, and that love of the world isn't from God, it's from the enemy. An enemy whose job description literally is to steal and kill and what, church? Destroy. We have an enemy who wants to see you love the world and hates to see you love God. And so the question for us this morning, as a church family, is what in your life is stealing and killing and destroying your love for the Father? What is it? Maybe it's a pattern in your life, a habit in your life that you need to root out. Maybe it's an idol, something that in and of itself isn't inherently sinful, but it's stealing and robbing your affection from Christ. I'm trusting that if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is already working. You know what that thing is. I know what that thing is. All right, second reason this passage gives us, second motivation to not love the world, let her be, the world is passing away. First reason God gives us to not love the world, the things in the world, is because that love is not from himself. It's not from the Father. Second reason is because the world is passing away. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The second motivation for us as Christians to not love the things in the world is that they're passing away along with the desires of the world. They're temporary. They won't last forever. Think about it this way. No reasonable person would invest in a company they knew was going bankrupt. You don't buy Blockbuster stock in 2017. You wouldn't board a sinking ship. You wouldn't ever bet on Dak Prescott and the Cowboys to win a Super Bowl. There are things that just won't ever happen. God is actually giving us a similar blueprint in this text. We don't bet on things in our lives that we know are doomed to failure. To set our hearts, church, on the things of this world, to put all of our hope, all of our eggs in the here and now is simply to build bigger barns where thieves can break in and steal and moths can destroy, leaving us in misery and ruin. But Jesus offers us a such a better way. Matthew 6 again, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Church, our treasure must be in heaven and not in the things of this world. It's the same message we've been seeing all morning. Our hope, our chief desires are rightly ordered 
when they are fulfilled first in Christ, first in God, a God who will never pass away and who the Bible tells us is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we're commanded to not love the world because that type of love is not from the Father and it will eventually pass away. That's where this passage leaves us this morning. That's the text. Offers us a clear command. And so here's where we are. For some of us, my hope is that this has been a helpful reminder, just a weekly reminder as we walk with Jesus to be on guard against the desires and the lusts of this world and to cultivate more and more in our lives as much as we humanly can a love for God and the things of God. Maybe for some of us, we've identified an area or two in our lives where Satan might be buffeting us, trying to limit our effectiveness for Christ and reduce our joy in Christ. But for most of us, I would bet the vital signs of our Christian lives, that breathing check that we talked about at the beginning, for most of us, we're breathing. Let me give you a huge hint that you're breathing this morning. If you hate your sin and you're fighting it, you're breathing. If you want to be on guard against the ways of the world, if you want to see more and more of a love for the Father in your life, those are good signs for you. If you feel affection for God, that's a great sign for you. And I would guess in a gathering of this size, that's most of us. But I also know that in a group like this, there are probably some of us who represent another group of people. And if you're in this group of people, maybe you identify as a Christian. Maybe you don't. But as you hear all this talk about having a love for God, if you're really honest with yourself, and I want to be real honest this morning, you don't feel that love for God. Like you want to, you really want to, but in your heart you feel no love for God. Maybe you've experienced a love for God at some point in your life, but for a while it seems as if that love has grown cold. Or maybe you've never really experienced a true and genuine joy and love for God. If that's you, I want to leave you with something really practical, something tangible that you can hang on to this morning. So if you would, if you're sitting here this morning struggling with loving God and struggling with loving the world, allow me to offer you two suggestions and then we'll close. Number one, I'm going to be really blunt here. Receive Christ. Receive Christ. Trust in Jesus. Repent, turn away from your sin, and trust in Jesus. We touched on this towards the beginning of our time this morning, but if you're here today banking on a decision for Jesus that you made years ago, and you now have no love for God in your life, then there's a real chance you haven't actually trusted in Jesus and received forgiveness of your sins. Again, I'm not here to provide false assurance. Henry Martin was a missionary in the 1900s, and he wrote this four years after his conversion, four years after he was saved, about the work of God. Martin said this, The work of God is real. I can no more doubt it than I can doubt my own existence. The whole current of my desires is altered. I'm walking quite another way, though I'm incessantly stumbling in that way. This should be our testimony, Christians. When someone truly comes to know Jesus, as Martin wrote, the whole current of our desires are altered. Pastor Andrew prayed it in our offering time. When someone trusts in Jesus, they are a new creation. 
The old is gone and the new has come. And what comes with that are new desires. The Puritans call these new affections, where we start slowly but surely to hate the things of the world and more and more in our souls, we love the things of God. We progress in holiness and righteousness. And when we do that, God looks better and better and better to us. And the world and the lusts of the world look more and more disgusting to us. And so if that isn't evident in your life, if that's not true of you, then dial in just for a second because there's one thing you absolutely need to know this morning. The core of the gospel is that cover to cover, this book tells us that Jesus is God. That he's God. He's the creator of the universe and the Lord over the universe. Fully God and fully man. And even though he was tempted in every way, just as we are, the Bible says that he was without sin. There's this really cool story in Matthew chapter 4, the scene where Jesus is led into the wilderness to fast, to be tempted by Satan. And get this, church, Satan tempts him with the same three things that he tempted Eve with. The same three things that he tries to get us with. He tempted Jesus with the desires of the flesh. He promised Jesus food. He tempted him with the desires of the eyes. He showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, and the Bible says all their splendor. And he tempted Jesus with the pride of life, tempting Jesus to put God to the test, proving that he could go outside of God's will and show himself to have supreme power as the Messiah. But did Jesus sin? No, Jesus resisted, living a perfect life, making himself the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And the Bible tells us that Jesus died on a cross for that sin. Let me tell you what happened on the cross. On the cross, that's why we sing about it every week. Jesus didn't just take Roman nails and a crown of thorns. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the full wrath and hatred of God against sin. He took it all. Drank every last drop. drop. In the Old Testament, the Bible talks about the wrath of God like a cup. Jesus drank it down to the bottom. That's why he says before he dies, what? It is what? Finished. That means that for the Christian, there's no more penalty for our sin. For the Christian, there's no more fearing the wrath of God because that wrath has been abated by the propitiation of Jesus. We talked about this two weeks ago. Because of Jesus, he's averted the wrath of God. And in God's, instead of taking God's wrath, we now have God's love, God's affection for us. And we know this, church, God killed Jesus. God allowed Jesus to be killed, poured out his wrath on him, and then Jesus rose from the grave. God caused it all so that we could know him as son and daughter, which is the most incredible truth in the world. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you don't have a love of God in your heart, Here's my encouragement for you. Receive Christ. Come to know Jesus as Savior and as Lord and as the King over your life. What do we do with that good news? What do we do with the gospel? We repent of our sin. We believe in the message of the gospel and we receive Christ as Lord. The second suggestion for you, if you're sitting here this morning, you don't feel love for God in your heart. Number two, do the works you did at first. It's possible that for some of you, you have indeed been born again, but your love for God has faded and grown cool. And there might be a time where you were on fire for Jesus. 
There might be a time that you remember where you have a zeal for the gospel, but if you're honest, those days feel like a distant memory. Your Christian life of late has been one that simply just goes through the motions. There's no passion in it. And if that's the case for you, listen to the words of Christ to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says this, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus says this, repent and do the works you did at first. I want to invite the band back up. I'll close with this. I've done enough marriage counseling now to see some patterns in marriages that are struggling. Couples who have been together for a long time can sometimes fall into a rut where it feels like they're just going through the motions. And maybe the husband used to bring flowers all the time or used to go on weekly date nights. And maybe there was a time where the wife would actually watch sports with the husband and ask questions like she cared. They would do those things. They would serve each other in ways that would just slowly but surely build up mutual affection. But over time, because of the rhythms and busyness of life, those acts of service, those words of affirmation, whatever they are, they started to drift and fall away. And so what happens in that marriage? The love grows cold. Listen, for you, if you're struggling to love God this morning, there might be a time where you remember you were on fire for Jesus. Like, remember to that moment where you got your birth certificate, where God saved you. And in that time, you were on fire for him. You were in love with him. You brought him up whenever you could. You looked for excuses to tell other people about Jesus. You couldn't wait to wake up in the morning to spend time with him in prayer and in his word. But over time, because of the business and the rhythms of life, those habits, those practices and disciplines have fallen by the wayside. God's word to us in Revelation is repent and do the works you did at first. And I get to meet with students and college students all the time, and they talk about how they don't feel love for God. One of my counsels to them is do the things you did at first. Act like you love God, because love, at the very root of it, is not a feeling, it's a verb. Act like you love him. Pick up your Bible in the morning. Cultivate habits of prayer and spiritual disciplines, of fasting, journaling, of Bible intake. Act like you love God and then trust God to honor those practices and then supply affections. That's what God does best. Think about your place here as a member or a participant here at Coastal Church in Chesapeake. We have a discipleship process designed to help you grow in your love for the Lord. So if you're struggling to love God, redouble your commitment to attending corporate worship, to connecting with God in corporate worship. These Sunday morning gatherings are lifelines for the Christian. Think about how you can grow in a small group and you can go to a small group not just to get something out of it, but to contribute to someone else's need. Think about how you can serve in ministry inside the four walls of the church and on mission outside the four walls. Listen, I don't think we have a perfect discipleship process here at Coastal, but we have a pretty good one. If you are struggling with your love for God, dive into this local church and watch God bless you and supply your need. So here's my prayer for us, Coastal in Chesapeake, is that we would be a people that do not love the world. We love the people in the world, but we don't love the things in the world. Because we see that God is the only one worthy of our affection and our time, our talent, our treasure, and our love. And so here's what I want to do. I want to pray to that end. I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, if you have that love that's grown cold, come up and talk to me, Pastor Andrew, Pastor Hunter, anyone here would love to have a conversation with you about what it might mean to come to know Christ. Let's pray together. 
Father, I thank you so much for this time in your word this morning. I thank you for this local body of believers. God, for your, your grace and your favor on them. I pray a bold prayer for us this morning as a church family that we would not love the things of the world. God, I know that there are areas of my own heart where the enemy is trying to get me to love the things of the world. God, I want to resist that. I want us to resist those things because we see Christ as our supreme treasure. There's no joy like a joy in Jesus. You will put more joy in our hearts than they have when their grain and wine abound, as it says in Psalm 4. So help us to love you, God. We believe overcome our unbelief today. I pray that if there's someone here who needs to know more about Jesus, they would have that conversation. They'd be bold enough to come up and talk to one of us about what it means to love God. I pray for the struggling believer in this room. Encourage their spirit. Awaken a love for yourself in them, God. I know you can do it. Thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.